Welcome to Living the Dream Outdoors, the official podcast of Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. We live by the motto, it's not just land, it's a lifestyle. And we live the outdoor lifestyle every day. Whether you're a landowner or dreaming of joining the ranks of those closest to the earth, we're your brothers and sisters of the outdoors. We hunt, we fish, we're stewards of the land, and our Living the Dream team will show you the way to enjoying the land and all the outdoor pursuits it has to offer. Here's your host, Bill Cooper. Welcome to this episode of Living the Dream Outdoors podcast. Hey, it's a great day in the Ozarks, but we're having great fun. I'm sitting over at the uh, Rolla, Missouri, U.S. Forest Service office and uh, talking to some guys here this morning. It's going to be full of great information. Uh, I'm quite a fan of the Forest Service. I haven't been a lot around quite as long as the Forest Service. But uh, in Missouri, we have uh, oh, a million and a half acres of U.S. Forest Service lands. And I've been on probably most of those lands in my 45 years I've been in the old arts. And absolutely love what the Forest Service does. But with me this morning, I have Cody Norris, who's the public affairs specialist. I have Thomas Sailors, who's the recreation program manager. And David Massengale, who's a forester. True forester, I guess. I have real forester. A yeah. real forester. <laughs> I, I was expecting you to have on a Smoky Bear uniform. Well, you know? sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but he's from down at the Salem District. But it's great to pull three talents like this in to be able to spend some time together and put out some great information. But, guys, of course, uh, I went through Parks and Recreation School at University of Missouri. I uh, did a bachelor's degree actually in park management and a master's in outdoor education. So I have a real feel for what you guys do particularly you thomas although you tell me that you're a you're a paper pusher <laughs> but guys i'd like to you you guys know as well as me that the general public confuses public land management agencies and of course the uh, u.s forest service is one of the oldest and largest land management agencies in the country so i would like to for you guys and the any of you can address the question, sure. but I'd like to kind of start from the beginnings. How did the Forest Service even come into being? Well, um, you know, so we're part of the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, so that sets us a little bit apart from some of the other land management agencies already because, you know, a lot of people are familiar with state parks and every state they're at, but then there's also the Park Service, which is under Department of Interior, and uh, the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, is also Department of Interior. So we have a kind of a mission of uh, service beyond just the, uh, you know, recreation, even though that's a big way that people get connected to their public lands. And, um, you know, the mission of the Forest Service, I'm going to read this out loud, but uh, is to sustain the health diversity and productivity of the nation's forest and grasslands to meet the needs of present and future generations. And sometimes we shorten that to caring for the land and serving people. So it's a, it's a big mission. It really is. And the latest figures I can find, there's like 154 national forest areas, 20 national grasslands. Of course, in Missouri, we don't think too much about the grasslands. Do we have any grasslands in Missouri? We're the only national forest or grassland in Missouri is Mark Twain National Forest. Yeah, we don't have grasslands per se, but we do have 37 active grazing permits. Um, And on those, there are 71 grazing allotments. 
Um, total is about uh, 2,170 acres that are available for haying on national forest lands in Missouri. Now, that's very interesting. I, I would bet 95% of our listeners and their outdoorsmen probably are not even aware of that fact. Now, having trooped around as much as I have over the last four decades in the Missouri Ozarks, uh, I have run across some of those grasslands. That's the reason I asked the question because it was, it was pretty intriguing to me because usually we think of grasslands as a huge allotments out west and the big cattle ranchers and all, all that sort of thing. But uh, back to the original question about the uh, Forest Service, when did it really start? Yeah, sorry, I kind of skipped that. I mean, um, so there was I some visionaries. Let you get by. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, so Gifford Pinchot was the big visionary in the beginning in the early 1900s, and uh, um, there was a lot of conservation movements going around at the time. And you know, people in living memory remembered when you know you could go across what were then becoming states and there were just trees where a squirrel could run across the state if they wanted to and all that had been disappearing (laughs) and so people were like wow I remember this used to be forest everywhere and now there's not so there's a big conservation movement of what would be good for the country to maintain the productivity of forest and the um, the you know natural intrinsic value of getting out in nature and people being able to you know stay connected and um, have some areas where they could go that seemed untrammeled still, and those kind of turned into wilderness areas or national parks, you know. Um, but, yeah, Gifford Pinchot, he had um, a little more of a, you know, utilitarian multiple-use uh, view than maybe like Muir or some of the people that were kind of founders of the National Park Service. And um, he had uh, kind of looked at the Prussian military uh, as – an example of how to kind of model the agency's timber and then what became the fire program. And so it did have a very, um, uh, you know, a multiple use beginning with the national forest. A lot of them were timber reserves that kind of got turned into forest out West. Um, and then even here, I think there were some timber reserves in Missouri. Um, but then there was a lot of stuff that became the forest through the weeks act where in the thirties, a lot of uh, land was, um, they went out to purchase land to try to go, okay, what, what was overused for, you know, railroad building, you know, they were producing railroads and um, burning things for charcoal and um, just using a lot of the land. And, you know, there were the dust ball, all those things. So there's a lot of this like heavy use that depleted land. And they were like, well, let's get in there and start making some land that we can use our knowledge through, you know, about restoration to bring back forest into different States. And in Missouri, the, that became the Mark Twain and Clark that combined into the Mark Twain eventually. So we have one national forest here now. Yeah, we probably have. That's funny because I bet this forest probably has had more names than any other national forest <laughs> in the country. Yeah. <laughs> Switching between two forests to one forest to for- national forest of Missouri to, yeah. It's yeah. crazy, but yeah, yeah. I, I was really happy to see that name change and make it Mark Twain because it used to be kind of confusing it, back in my college days. And that's, starting to try to write that sort of thing you know oh i made mistakes you know i mentioned such and such an area in the mark twain well it was in the clark and vice versa you know so it really simplified things for outdoor communicators i'm sure for the public as well oh yeah yeah we had two so's so there was an so here in rolla supervisor's office in rolla and then a supervisor's office in springfield that handled the mark twain rolla handled the clark so yeah there was confusion everywhere well we've come a long way since then yes i hope i hope to say well, I studied, of course, all the conservation agencies and organizations while I was in college, and it was a bit confusing to me because when you get into mission statements, they are quite different. And that's fortunate for the American public because we have the National Park Service, we have the 
Bureau of Land Management and other agencies that uh, quite, you know, if you look at it in total, I don't know what the percentage across America is for public lands, but it, it's got to be fairly sizable. Of course, I, I look at Shannon County uh, down south, about two hours south of here, and uh, I think there's something like 85% public land uh, and there's a number of agencies that are represented down there. But back to the Mark Twain and back to the Forest Service and uh, your mission, I'm a bit of a historian. I'm a big Teddy Roosevelt fan. I like to go all the way back to Teddy, you know, in the uh, 18, late 1800s. I think he and a bunch of other conservation-minded people got together, and, and uh, they kicked the idea of, uh, you know, a Forest Service around a little bit too. Of course, Teddy's big interest was uh, Yellowstone National Park. And he and John Muir, I, I know, had uh, probably more, more meetings than they recorded at Yellowstone. But uh, <laughs> that was their big vision, was to first preserve Yellowstone. And I think the Boone and Crockett Club may have e even had a little involvement way back there. So there's been a long history of conservation in the United States. And, and we've kind of set the tone, I guess, for the rest of the world. So feathers in our caps. But I'm sure you guys would agree we still got a long ways to go. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. We do. Well, and that is that 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 is a good point. Like Cody said, with Gifford's idea of you know not just concentrating on preservation but more conservation, so that you're you're doing a little bit of everything and um, allowing people to, to uh, drive their cars or loud <laughs> trucks or something on the. But uh, but that was that was kind of the the thing was the multiple use was their big thing, and of course. Um, Pinchot knew Roosevelt really well and Muir, and, and they were sort of friends and anti-friends in different th different ways and all this kind of stuff. And and so, um, yeah, it, it really was sort of the West kind of got the most of it. And then um, then here, in, here on the Mark Twain, um, we started uh, – the federal government actually had to come in uh, and get uh, state legislative approval to purchase land, if I remember correctly. And then they said, yes, but you can only have so many acres or so many acres within certain counties or something like that. And uh, that's kind of where it happened. It's like Cody said, the, the land was just abused. It had been cut over. It had been burned. It had been, you know, we've got old pictures, uh, some research pictures that show um, like old cornfields or old sorghum fields that are just rock with just little plants sticking out of them. So, you know, they basically abused it down to nothing, and, and they gave up on it. They couldn't make a living, and they left. And so that's when the federal government said, well, we can probably take these lands, buy these lands, and, and uh, maybe try to turn it into a national forest or something like that. Yeah. And they used to call these lands the lands that nobody wanted, um, yeah. and now they're the lands that everybody wants. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, we, uh, on the Mark Twain, we manage uh, for a variety of uses. Um, like Dave was saying, um, for multiple use sustained yield. We manage for uh, outdoor recreation, livestock grazing, timber, wilderness, um, minerals, watersheds, and habitat for fish and wildlife. We don't manage the, habit, uh, the, the wildlife themselves. We just manage the habitat for them. And the Forest Service has a plaque um, that says wood, water, wildlife, um, uh, cultural or historic, yeah, something. Um, and so I always used to tell people, interns, uh, when they would come on, we manage for wood, 
water, willy old stuff, and wequiation. <laughs> Just keep so, it with the W's. The that makes it easy. Yeah. <laughs> you so. bet it. I like that. I'll have to jot that down later. I'll probably use that. I like those sorts of things. But, yeah, the Forest Service was probably in the forefront in Missouri. Of course, we did start our conservation department or commission, as it was called then, in 1937. Missourians, I think, were a little bit ahead of the nation as far as being conservation-minded. Either that or they had some very good leadership and probably Probably a, a little bit of both, but of course the Ozarks, and, and man, it's near and dear to my heart. I've, I've read accounts, or somebody's told me this somewhere along the line, that we used to actually have 18 inches of topsoil across these hills, and and after you know the railroads came through and the timber was just pretty well scalped off of the land, and then the people that stayed on after the railroads try try to farm, as you mentioned, David, and. Uh, I can't imagine trying to farm other than some very fertile bottomlands, you know, and that's where the most of it occurred. But they had the seriously horrible habit of burning the woods every spring, you know, and we we still deal with that some because uh, you get rid of the ticks and the chiggers and the snakes, Snakes, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that came from the Irish folks. I, mean, <laughs> I got some Irish background, and, of course, uh, I love the Irish wilderness. We'll get into talking yeah. about that maybe a little bit later in the uh, program. But the Forest Service came along and did buy up all these lands and started reforestation projects. And, you know, I wouldn't you have liked to have seen all of that? Because uh, I'm sure within a matter of, you know, a few years or maybe 20 years, however many, probably started seeing some streams clear up. You saw fish populations coming back, saw wildlife populations coming back. And, and uh, Thomas, you, you mentioned you don't manage the wildlife, but you have very good uh, agreements, I'm sure, with the Missouri Department of Conservation. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love for, uh, for Dave to kind of talk about habitat restoration, like as a silviculturist, because we just had a big milestone the last couple of years with the return of an extirpated species, which is... That, that's incredible. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Please and, do. And that is, and, and, that, and that'll tie in a little bit to the recreation or to the wildlife part too, but... But um, one of the big things, of course, that we have here in Missouri is shortleaf pine. It's the only native pine to Missouri. Um, and it kind of has a range that runs sort of from the Ava area up through south-central Missouri and sort of towards St. Louis, and that's kind of where it is. That's what they were after. When the, when the logging companies came in, these great big pine, they'd, they'd basically decimated the western or the eastern forests, and they were moving west trying to find more building material, and, you know, the trains were coming through and trying to make, you know, they needed railroad ties, so the hardwoods were being cut. And when the pine was cut, they didn't reforest it, of course. There was no forestry programs. There were no um, conservation programs and that sort of thing, and so that's kind of where, you know, the uh, Missouri Department of Conservation, the Forest Service came in, started working on some of these things, and that... That really was the beginning of trying to get the pine back in that, that has a little bit more difficulty reseeding than the oaks do. And um, so I can't remember the numbers exactly, but I think we only have about a third of the pine that we had at one time uh, before Europeans got here. And so trying to put some of that pine back on the ground, and that's what they've been doing down there at um, Poplar Bluff and Donovan districts is where they're working in these big pineries, and they're developing um, – 
kind of a restoration strategy that they're getting kind of grasses and forbs underneath Great Big Pine. That's going to be the, the ultimate, you know, uh, final thing, which it'll take hundreds of years, really, to do it right. But um, that's where they just introduced the new, that little bird, and now I can't think the name of it, Pine Warbler? Nuthatch? Nuthatch, that's what it was. And yep. so they've reintroduced that, released some down there. and um, That's awesome. That's part of the wildlife thing of trying to bring stuff back. And yeah, and that's well, down in the Irish wilderness, isn't it? Is I believe it's the in the area. Areas? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to get you guys to hold that thought. We need to take just a short break here. I have to hear from our banker. You know, he, had, <laughs> he advises all of us about uh, properties and how to go about a, a, go through the application process and all those steps that you have to go through to acquire property. Of course, uh, again, 85% of our properties in Missouri are privately owned, and you, you guys, I'm sure, have to deal with private landowners all the time. Banker's going to tell us how to do it. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Brandon Licklider here with the Marys County Bank. Uh, today I wanted to share some information with you on a scenario that I've been dealing with recently with some customers on the financing side and hopefully be able to ease some minds as, as you all are out there looking for um, some beautiful properties to obtain that's on the market today. Um, if you're in the market for some new property but you aren't sure exactly what type of transaction you're going to be looking for, um, don't let that discourage you from going ahead and going through the pre-qualification process um, just to be prepared to move on a property that you're interested in. Um, I've been dealing here lately with a lot of customers who are a little bit uncertain as to what type of transaction they're going to be getting into, whether it's just land at this time or maybe they're going to buy some land with future construction or possibly going ahead and, and buying that dream land that, that already has the house on site. Um, they are a little different loan products that we work through, but uh, we can go ahead and, and pre-qualify you based on any of those scenarios to make sure you're you're ready to go whenever the time's right and, and you see that property out there. They, they sure aren't lasting long when they hit the market. So uh, if this is a scenario that you're dealing with, you know, at this point in time, feel free to reach out to myself at 573 573- 885-8900. I'd be glad to go over any potential options with you that, that may apply to your specific scenario and answer any questions you may have. Um, in closing, just want to let you know again, this is Brandon Licklider with the Marys County Bank, and we are an equal housing lender and member FDIC. Welcome back to this second segment of Living the Dream Outdoors podcast. I'm sitting over to U.S. Forest Service office. A little chilly, a little damp today. And we're sitting outside. Got a nice cover over our heads here. Got a little traffic noise, but uh, it's hard to get away from that anywhere. But I have to say, I was in a place uh, last weekend where I got away from most of it. My wife and I camped out down at Paddy Creek Recreation Area right there on the uh, border of the Paddy Creek Wilderness Area. Love that place. I had grandkids down there this, this last summer and almost couldn't get them to come home you know there's some fine <laughs> swimming holes and snorkeling <laughs> spots there but uh in a previous segment we were uh talking about some of the wildlife projects that you guys work on on the national forest you just had a great success with the reintroduction of a nut hatch and have the birders flocked to the area yet trying to find them or what's going on so there's there's some uh birders that are in the know looking for them um but you know at the same time that 
community also understands when you reintroduce a species like that, there's a limited number. You don't want to disturb the habitat too much. So, you know, it's not something where we're, you know, putting up big neon signs, go this way to see the new birds. (laughs) We're really trying to kind of, you know, the the folks that are into birding know how to be respectful. Exactly. Um, But, yeah, it is is something that people are Excellent, excellent point. Uh, I'm in the Missouri Outdoor Communicators, about 75 of us, and we're a pretty old group. But uh, we had our uh, annual conference uh, last year down at Donovan, and we were into the Donovan Ranger District, and some of the guys that dealt with uh, the Irish Wilderness and all. Really cool to listen to them because they were very protective of the Irish Wilderness and species like this. They're probably dealing with those some as well. But those guys, in my book, have got the right idea. They they, they weren't even big on signage, you know, as far as uh, they kind of encourage people. Have your map and compass or whatever it is you use these days, you know, to navigate around the forest. That was really cool. And I know there were several stories come out of our group of, about that very situation. So, so. Hopefully we help to educate a few more people about the Irish wilderness and some of the principles that uh, not only the Forest Service stands for, but individuals within the Forest Service. But other things that are going out, going on wildlife-wise. Um, uh, one thing that uh, we alluded to a little earlier is, is the partnerships. Um, we do partner with the Missouri Department of Conservation, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, um, USDA's APHIS group, um, the Nature Conservancy Cave Research Foundation, Wild Turkey Federation, um, Mill Creek Watershed Coalition. Um, there was a couple others. The new ones, um, a quails on not either unlimited or quails forever. It's quails, quails forever. forever. Yeah. 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 Did, did quails forever I think they went in forever. with pheasants forever. Didn't that may right. be right. the same yeah. group now. Well, that's that's quite a list now. Uh, Thomas, is that your job to deal with all those organizations, or no? The um, he says lucky. He has his own. <laughs> he has his own cool partners. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Trail okay. Association. Some some of those are my partners. Um, some of them are not uh, so much. The recreation side would be, but like I said, the the state manages the um, hunting seasons and the bag limits and all that for the state of Missouri's wildlife population, and. Uh, um, we just uh, are, are hosts um, for that government land. And uh, in North Carolina, we, where I came from, we had, uh, um, they called us conservation land. Uh, so we, they, were, they were hunted just like they were their own lands. Let's see. So, uh, similar here, I reckon. Sort of similar here. Yeah. I think that's right. It's, yeah. It is that thing that the Missouri Department of Conservation manages all the laws and regulations with wildlife, like Tom said. Um, but we provide the land is what it basically yeah. comes down to. And, and our law enforcement still can write tickets on right. wildlife things, but ours don't have quite the teeth that the MDC uh, regulations right. And there's do. not as many of them, are there? And there's not very many. That's right. right. Uh, MDC has at least an agent, I think, per county. Does yeah. that sound yeah. right? That's something right. like that. And sometimes two in some places. So right. um, in places that have a lot more land. And, and uh, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of law enforcement coordination. You know, our folks are going to be focused on the federal regulations that apply to the federal lands and, you know, really doing a lot of investigation type work. But then on the response and enforcement they're coordinating with you know local sheriff's office but also all the missouri department of conservation uh agents agents yeah yeah well yeah. I, interesting story from my background many years ago i applied with the conservation department i was trying to get into their education uh system mm-hmm. 
I didn't have a teacher certificate at the time. They oh. required that mm-hmm. way back when, and uh, but they were going to give me a little bit of reprieve and make me a conservation agent. And uh, oh gosh, was that ever a process? I applied. There were seventeen jobs and. Like 1,700 people applied for those 17 jobs. They oh, inter- yeah. interviewed 425. And a year later, they called me and offered me a position. <laughs> well, I'd picked up a pretty darn good job in the meantime. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't go. But I watched young folks pile into the conservation department. And uh, I, I knew a young fellow up out of Jeff City who was a principal of a Catholic school and a real educator, you know, sharp young man. Well, the next thing I knew, he's working for the conservation department, run, running Runji Nature Center in Jeff City. Mm-hmm. Then they kind of reorganized, I think, into 10 districts, and he was one of the district supervisors or managers for outdoor education. And Ralph Duran, you may know that name. Ralph worked for the conservation department, dear friend of mine, and Ralph had a unique title of being uh, a wildlife uh, imitator yeah. or, you know he could do like 35 sounds entertain <laughs> thousands of people ralph was just mumbling he said i've been here for 30 something years and that guy right out of college is my boss yeah <laughs> <laughs> said, get used to it yeah <laughs> yeah because it's coming but grand things have happened since then but uh Forest Service, yeah, huge land base, great things going on. Any other wildlife projects that's going on on Forest Service lands? So, so I had a thought earlier when you mentioned Yellowstone and uh, yeah. you know Muir and uh, um, uh, our, our then president or to be president talking about conservation. And when I was at Yellowstone, I remember seeing a big rock, and they talked about how that was where the the kind of beginning of theories of glacial movement happened. You know, looking at this rock there in Yellowstone Valley, going, "How did it get here?" You know, and um, and maybe that was Yosemite. Sorry, I'm thinking Yosemite, well, not I, Yellowstone. But hey, near, you know, near to some, my heart too. Yeah, I got a sad and, uh, story about that too. <laughs> but you know, and I was thinking that's one of the things that makes the wildlife here so special is the land itself is unique because the glacial movement didn't make it all the way down into the Ozarks and where you're talking about the soil types and you so you have the Dolomite glades and then a lot of the topsoils never got um, pushed away by the glacial movements um, and melted down into the valleys and all that stuff. So there was a lot of very unique habitat that was spared from the Ice Age. And so you had um, just a wide variety of species that kind of had a long time to develop. And, you know, even in like individual haulers and stuff, there were, you know, species that are endemic to that uh, specific site on the Mark Twain. Um, You know, I can't think of any of our threatened endangered species off the top of my head, but some of the like the dragonfly. uh, Oh, Heinz Emerald dragonfly. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those species are very unique and special. And there's a lot of management that goes into you know, um, preserving those, not just conserving, but preserving our threatened endangered species and some of these unique habitats that we have. And some of those we work with MDC, uh, we have a lot of natural areas designated on the Mark Twain that also state manages natural areas. But those are going to be very special places and, you know, for their unique things. And I I just discovered, I didn't realize we don't issue uh, special use permits uh, very often, if at all, for natural areas because we want to really preserve that special habitat. So, um, you know, similar to wilderness areas having their protections to keep, you know, those untrammeled areas for people to connect with nature. We have very specific protections with some parts of the forest for wildlife and, um, you know, bringing these, these unique species back or, um, keeping what's there safe. Yeah. Um, and, and we had, you were speaking about projects and recreation, um, 
you, we do some special projects, even along trails, um, to preserve certain species. In North Carolina, we actually had to big, build snail bridges. Snail um, bridges. We had to bri- build <laughs> snail bridges on the Appalachian Trail really? for the um, Nantahala Noonday Snail, or Nantahala, yeah, Noonday Snail. Um, and Say so, that five times faster. So yeah. there, there, are, there are about five of these um, seven-foot-long um, trail bridges that go over, and it's supposedly a crossing for that snail to make sure it can get back. Now, I could ask all kinds water. of questions that, about that. How do you get a snail to cross a bridge? Well, well they you go under it. Under it. Under okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you say slime? You put signage. <laughs> You know, Science. arrows and things. Oh, yeah. Sure. You go under it, and they, and they were actually um, natural draws um, that they traveled in, and they didn't ah. want to interfere with their migration <coughs> or, or what have you. So that's the kind of things that we do on our land for um, wildlife and um, endangered ha- uh, species. So, Well, yeah. the folks that get to work, work on that, that kind of thing must really be cool people was all I could say. And th- that makes me th- think, you know, down in southern Missouri, we get a tarantula migration at times. Yep. And Charlie yeah. Farmer, who's been gone probably for a decade, but a superb writer in, in Missouri, actually told a story one time, and I think it's in one of his books. He was early in the morning traveling one of the highways where these spiders, he said thousands of them were crossing and people were running over him. He said the highway got slick and he almost slid off the highway. <laughs> and I'm thinking, hey, maybe we need some tarantula <laughs> tunnels. Tunnel or yeah. something like that. Yeah. 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 That, and that, it, like Cody, like he was saying, that, that brings it up. That when you think tarantula, you think the southwestern United States. You right. don't think Missouri. But the Ozarks are so unique because of that, of the whole idea that, um, the glaciers pushed down from the north. They only came so far. It pushed, you know, vegetation and animals so far. Right. And then the, the warmths came up from the south, and so it was pushing things back, you know, different directions. And so the Ozarks are so unique in what they do, what we've got, and, and the little niches that have filled in in places. And um, one of the – and speaking from the timber side, one of the neat things that, that dealt with that glacier that came – the last glacier, Wisconsin Glacier, whichever one it was – they came down, it pushed um, some of the species, the tree species down, right. so that in the Ozarks, we actually had, like, what you would find in Michigan and Minnesota now. They were the dendrochronologist. Cody and I were dealing with dendrochronology <laughs> not too long ago on another <laughs> another uh, issue. But um, from the University of Missouri, um, were able to identify a piece of a jack pine tree in Round Spring. So it really? had been in the spring and preserved, and when they pulled it out, they said, well, that's jack pine. Wow. And that's from that glacier pushing stuff down so we have these really unique things that that have just all developed right here in the ozarks uh, exactly and i've always been so intrigued by the shallow oceans that were here for 10 different times probably came and receded and of course we've got southern species as well i i think in southeast missouri we've actually got a few trees that were pushed over from the eastern part of the, mm-hmm. the country mm-hmm. uh, so so many unique things here and that's just a part of what makes the missouri Ozark, an incredibly unique place. And I was telling you guys earlier before we started recording, I came from Missouri, Boot Hill, from cotton fields, and I had a had an uncle who was a VOAG teacher who was my great inspiration in life. But he, I just thought he was a genius because he knew so much about <laughs> outdoor things, you know, for, all the way from soils and rocks and minerals to. But he knew a lot about parks as well, and he's one that got me interested in. in Parks. I was a park superintendent for a number of years, then a naturalist for the state park system. 
But my big dream was always to go out west. I was fascinated by Yellowstone and Yosemite and Glacier and all these beautiful places. And I actually got an opportunity my junior year in college to work for the Park Service. And I was headed to Glacier for the summer. Lo and behold, sad story. You guys all got to cry now. Uh, <laughs> the dean of the department called me. They took two from the University of Missouri. Dean called us in right before we were supposed to leave, and he said, boys, you got to find another job. That deal fell through, and we're going, what? You know, I mean, because we had a good uh, shot at uh, getting on full time. And, of course, uh, from the time I graduated, finished a master's degree, Vietnam was going on, Nixon was president, most federal jobs were shut down, and uh, I wound up in Vietnam instead of in uh, Glacier. <laughs> so, <laughs> pretty different wow. yeah uh, quite different wow. but but still I, I have such a respect you know for all the conservation agencies and what you guys are doing uh we're going to close out this segment and in the next segment i want to really address uh some recreation uh areas uh some wilderness areas and anything else that you guys want to toss in uh b- because unfortunately we only get to do these three segments and I feel like I'm sitting in the midst of a gold mine of information having you guys sitting around me. But I will say, I hope this is not the the only time that we get together and discuss things going on with the Forest Service. But let's take another break. Folks, stay with us. Uh, we don't care if you're driving down the highway. We're in a lot of traffic, uh, carrying in the groceries, whatever. We'd like for you to stick with us because we got some more great information we'd like for you to hear. I'll be right back. Here we are. We've arrived at my favorite part of the podcast, the giveaway. And we do this every two weeks on the show. We always have some great prizes, but today we will be giving away another $100 Academy gift card. That's Academy Sports. They've got lots of outdoor items there that you outdoorsmen will enjoy. And uh, we'll be announcing a winner here in just a few minutes. And uh, say congratulations because these are great gifts. But on the podcast today, I'm uh, going to talk about a variety of things real quick, like uh, I hope you too are having a beautiful November day here in the Missouri, Missouri Ozarks. It's uh, sunny outside, about 38 to 40 degrees, and the bucks are in full rut. I hope you've been out doing some bow hunting because there's been some great bucks taken. Even back in the youth season uh, at the end of October, a couple of days over the weekend, there were a lot of good bucks taken by our youth. And I always loved seeing the kids take some good deer. But in Missouri, they harvested over 14,000 deer, so there was pretty good success rate. And the kids had a great time. And my grandson, Ronnie Cooper Austin, managed to take his very first deer. He's 10 years old. He killed a nice doe. And actually, we're going to have some of that for dinner tonight, some good old tender backstraps. Well, good luck to you as you continue your bow hunting. And, of course, it's not long here in Missouri, just a few days here. Our rifle season will be opening up. Tens of thousands of people will head to the fields and forests and uh, woods in pursuit of the white-tailed deer, the most famous and sought-after game animal in North America. But... We wish you a safe and successful deer hunt. And remember, always identify your target before you pull that trigger. Well, I'd like to do a little reading just real quick. It's very short, so don't uh, think you're going to have to wait a big, long time to get past this. But no mammal in the world 
has likely attracted more attention, stirred more controversy, or has been so intensively investigated as the adaptable white-tailed deer, a species that has not only survived in the wake of modern man's devastation, but has thrived and greatly expanded its traditional range in the Americas. And that comes from John Ozuga from Whitetail Country in 1992. I'd say John hit the nail right on the head, and we all love pursuing and chasing those white-tailed deer. And good luck to all of you. Now, I want to make a quick mention of our sponsors today. Of course, number one on the list is Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. Uh, the podcast is their idea. They promote it, and we're quite thankful for these these guys. And Hey, they live the dream. They're selling lots of outdoor properties. If you need to list or if you need to buy, these guys can take care of you. Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. Of course, the Fly Rod Journal, SmokerBuilder.com, Cowtown USA, Westover Farms, Scenic Rivers Taxidermy, Stainwater Bow Fishing, Scenic Rivers Guide Service and Tours, Huzal Valley Resort, Pico Lures, Devil's Backbone Outfitters, Cardiac Mountain Outfitters, Mary's County Bank, Rich's Famous Burgers, The Fallen Outdoors, Ledco Sinker and Lure Company, and Turnbow Outdoors from down at Cherryville, Missouri. That's a long list of good sponsors and I encourage you to utilize these businesses whenever possible. They keep us in business, and uh, we love it. But uh, all right, for the giveaway, had quite a few entrants, and uh, the lucky guy is turning around the hat. Pull out a name. Looks like Jeremy Patterson. And Jeremy, he's from Kansas City and quite an outdoorsman. I'm looking at his Facebook page. I'll pull it up right quick. And he's a pro staffer at Riversmith, USA, pro staffer at Malau. They put out some good waterproof products. I know that. Uh, I have some of their waterproof bags I use when I'm floating and camping. And He's also with J&J Fly Fishing. Had a boy. Love fly fishing. But uh, he's originally from Lapeer, Michigan, but lives in Kansas City, Missouri. So, Jeremy, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, be sure and uh, send me a personal message, and I'll get your address and get this card in the mail to you. Don't tarry too long because I will eventually, it will expire, you know, and I might have to use it. <laughs> Just kidding you. But I'll send you a message and let you know as well that uh, you have one man way to go now back to deer just a little bit uh you know it's going to be lots of uh deer venison boy going to be going into the cook pot and the frying pans and on the grills just real soon of course you archery hunters already been eating the back strap so good for you but I'd like to give you a, just a short recipe that you might consider using and uh, this comes out of my Outdoor Celebrities Cookbook, which I published in 1999. It's been a while ago. But uh, Mark Drury, and, of course, we know the Drury boys from way back. They're about my age, been around for decades, and they've just done tremendous things in the outdoor industry. But Mark uh, submitted um, a deer recipe for the Outdoor Celebrities Cookbook, and it's called Tenderloin Supreme. Now, we all know Tenderloin is is supreme, but I've never heard a recipe by this name. But Mark says to take two pounds of deer loin, one pound of bacon, one cup soy sauce, and some toothpicks. Trim the loin and cut into walnuts, walnut, walnut-sized pieces. Now, that's a strange 
description. You know, most of us would have said, hey, cut it in three or four inch squares or whatever. But walnut pieces, that's what it's got to be. Cut the bacon in thirds and wrap pieces of loin with the bacon. Secure it with toothpicks. Marinate in soy sauce for 15 minutes. Turn the piece of meat over and marinate it on the other side for 15 minutes. Now heat your oven broiler to 350 degrees. Broil three minutes on each side, and it's ready to serve. That doesn't sound like very long, but in in a broiler, I think it'll get the job done, and you're going to have some tender, tasty, tenderloin supreme. Thanks to Mark Drury. Well, we got the winner announced, but, you know, we have to have a winner for next week as well, and I want to tell you how to enter. All you got to do is go to the Living the Dream Outdoors podcast Facebook page. First, like the page, and then under comments, just type in your name, and that automatically enters you into the contest. And, uh, boy, we like giving these prizes away. Well, what's going to be the next prize on the list? We're going to have a $100 gift certificate from Rich's Famous Burgers. Now, if you can eat $100 worth of hamburgers, you're quite the guy. Oh, just just kidding you. Take the whole family with you, 100 bucks. Uh, these stores, I know there's one in Steelville, one about to open in uh, St. James right here where I, I live. But uh, good luck to you. I don't know if he serves deer burger or not. I doubt it. But you will have eaten enough uh, tenderloin and venison by that time. You'll be ready for some good old burgers. But Rich also has other foods, some great breakfast meals I've had over there as well. Well, it's time to get back to the program. Thanks for listening. Don't go away. I'm Bill Cooper. Welcome back to this last segment of Living the Dream Outdoors podcast. We hope you're enjoying the outdoors. Great many things to do in the Missouri Ozarks, and we're going to talk about uh, U.S. Forest Service recreation and some things that are going on there as well. And uh, Thomas tells me that he can do an elk bugle. Um, I I have been practicing, and I actually tried this out on some locals out in Northern California. Really? Well, can we hear one? You can. Spit that shoe out first. I will. Hey, I'd go hell cutting with you. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. I've only been hell cutting two or three times out, out in Colorado, some pretty wild trips. But, boy, what magnificent animals. But I did discover they're just a big turkey. You know, if you can call turkeys in <laughs> with a mouth call, you can call an elk in, I think. But I didn't have much luck. It's just, <laughs> just easier to carry a turkey out of the woods. It is a whole lot easier. Good point. And, in fact, the first trip I made out of was bow hunting southwest Colorado. Very hot, 95 to 100 degrees. And, boy, I'd practiced all summer. You know, I could I could put arrows in a 16-inch pipe plate all day long at 60 yards, and I just determined I, I wouldn't shoot any further than that. But way off down a mountain, sweating like crazy, me and my wife, and if we didn't walk right up on a herd and we split up and herded those things around, I could have shot them 15 times at 60. 60 yards but i told my wife i'm just not doing this you know because we got to carry this stuff out of here first place i'm going to die and second place we would lose some meat from the heat before we got it all out of there so i i just couldn't bring myself to do that 
that's the only shot opportunity I had all week. <laughs> so we could have eaten that elk right on the spot. I guess. Yeah. But couldn't waste that, that kind of meat, you know. But things that are going on in southern Missouri, outdoor recreation-wise, U.S. Forest Service. In Missouri, um, folks come to recreate for to participate in a lot of activities, including sightseeing, camping, hiking, backpacking, hunting, angling, uh, picnicking, floating, uh, paddling, bird watching, uh, horse riding, biking, and OHV uh, riding. We do have two OHV areas uh, on the forest, and um, they are um, Chadwick is probably um, one of our busiest uh, locations, and Cobridge Campground supports that. Um, the Forest Service and the Forest Plan uh, supports our recreation program, providing um, uh, rivers and trails access and public land access. And, and rivers and trails are kind of our, our niches. And uh, we have a number of, uh, of trails. There's about 750 miles of trails and roads on the forest. Um, the Ozark Trail uh, Association helps us to maintain our sections of the Ozark Trail that go through uh, the forest. Uh, Ozark Trail is about... 500 miles planned. I guess there's about 254 miles that are completed. and um, I think my son's done most of those. Mm-hmm. I, I did the ones in the south when I was down Poplar Bluff, Donovan on the 11 point. Um, but uh, we also have wildernesses, um, seven wildernesses that are congressionally designated wilderness areas. And there is some confusion about what is a wilderness versus backcountry. And a lot of folks use those words interchangeably. Exactly. And in the Forest Service, I kind of look at wilderness as, you know, the big W is the congressionally uh, designated units. And those are the seven that we have are Bell Mountain, Rock Pile Mountain, the Irish Wilderness, uh, Paddy Creek, Hercules Glade, Devil's Backbone, and Piney Creek. Um, and there's about 64,000 acres of wilderness in, uh, on the Mark Twain National Forest. I've been on most of those. I have to say the Irish wilderness is by far my favorite. That's, what, like 15,000 acres, give or take? What is it? What is it? I can't I don't remember. think it's quite that it's big. Ten. I was going to say somewhere 6 to 10 or somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that, is yeah. it? I think so. Okay. I think so. And, you know, uh, for a recreationist, I, I kind of look at wilderness as like the grad school, right? You need to get out exactly. and learn leave no trace principles and, get, you know, good uh, conservation ethics on normal trails and visiting, you know, the – the kind of off-the-road rec sites, then go to check out some of the other trail systems. And then when you're re- good and ready and, you you know, you know the outdoors and how to act and not get lost, that's the time to go check out a wilderness. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, right. And we always have to rem- remind folks that um, there's no motorized or um, mechanized equipment allowed in the wilderness. Um, so you are pretty much on your own and dragging a deer out of the wilderness. Um, you can use a sled, but it can't have any mechanized parts. Um, and I remember the first time I drug a, a deer off the top of the mountain, um, and I was trying to go to this, the fastest uh, trip between two lines. <laughs> and, and there was a drain there, and I, I started dragging oh. it, and as I went down that drain, that deer slid to one side of a tree, and I was on the other side of the tree. and. <laughs> <laughs> it was an experience. Oh, yes. Hey, I, I can identify with that. I did that up in North Missouri, killed the biggest doe I'd ever seen in my life, and I was a mile and a half back in the woods. But I was in a flat next to a creek, 
piece of cake. No, it wasn't a piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> About every 30 yards, there was a little ditch come out of the hills to the creek. I deered roll off. And even after I field dressed it, it was still extremely heavy. My wife was sitting about halfway through the area, and she'd had a little surgery, so she didn't want to walk too far. And she wasn't going to be any help. And she wasn't feeling too good. She wanted to go back to the motel, so... I left the deer right in her spot, dropped her off the motel, went to the local hardware store and got a plastic sled, Yeah, <laughs> rolled that deer up. And it was quite a bit easier, but I've got a jacked-up pickup. It's pretty high for an old man. And I got back to the truck with that big deer. I couldn't get it up on the tailgate. <laughs> so I tried and tried and tried. And I'm laying there in the grass, basically taking a nap in this big Young fellow walks out of the woods. He said, "Are you okay?" I said, "Not, not really. Not really. <laughs> I just drug a deer a mile and a half." He, he put the deer in the trunk and then put <laughs> you in the trunk. He did. <laughs> Picked it up by four legs and acted like it weighed about three pounds. Oh, no. you know? And he said, "Well, sir, you, you got it pretty easy." He said, "Me and my party have got thirteen deer down back in the woods. Oh. So the special hunts had all kinds of permits." I saw them the next day, and they were all pretty peaky. It took them to 1.30 the next morning to get all those deer out of the woods. But let's talk about wilderness areas a little bit more. I love the wilderness areas, and I'm actually considering deer hunting in in, uh, Paddy Creek this year. I've already picked out a camp spot. And I eyeballed that wilderness side, you know, but I'm thinking how far would I have to walk back in there to get away from folks enough to be able to – kill a deer and then what am i, what am I going to do after I, I get that animal down I, I would suggest quartering i found in in western Bingo. north carolina in the mountains quartering out your deer is the only way to go because um the little experience i had getting myself <laughs> hung up on the wrong side of a, a downhill tree um but quartering them out um and and then packing them out is the best way to be well you know i got a choice there in that dividing road of going east or going west and East is looking better all the time. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we, we think like that. We put our stands You do where, when you're 72. <laughs> we put our stands where it's most functional. We're going to, you know, in travel corridors for deers to their bedding area from their feeding area and everything. But I know that uh, when I was hunting on um, Poplar Bluff District that um, I, I probably was a quarter mile um, off the main road, mostly because of the taking it back to the truck <laughs> so. yeah exactly yeah exactly. and that's why so many people do hunt so close to the roadways you know they think about that work scenario but i i try to attract young men to go deer hunting with me i'm still sitting at zero right now <laughs> <laughs> well and and i think i i think all of our trails are all of our wildernesses allow horses in them so there is that ability to pack. If you can, if you can kill the deer and then find somebody with a horse, you might be able to get it packed out for you. But I do have good friends that live out east of uh, Licking who do have horses, and I've thought about that that as well. But I'm one of these guys. I worry if that deer's down, and I leave it. You know, is somebody going to steal it? And I've had that happen before. And do you uh, want to have your horse in the woods during deer season? Yeah. Right, exactly. right, especially if it's that color. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You better have an orange suit on him for yeah, sure. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, there'll be tens of thousands of deer hunters are going to flock to the National Forest Service land. It is so cool. And one thing that I love the most about the Forest Service, and I just think it's grand that they allow this, you can camp basically anywhere. And even driving through the wilderness area last weekend, 
uh, I went down some of the little side roads where I was allowed to go uh, on the east side. And just bukus of old campsites, you know, the rock fire rings and that sort of thing. And I'm going down as much as anything. I hope to kill a deer, although I do already have two in the freezer, archery kill. Uh, but I love deer meat, you know, venison is great stuff. But I'm going down as much as for anything to gather information from other hunters. Stories, I, I do write for uh, Drew's deer cast and uh, always looking for a great story to tell, you know. And deer hunters can tell some fabulous <laughs> stories. <laughs> and we'll tell it over and, and over, over and, and over. over. And it That's, may or may not be exactly right, but, well, you know. Well, as deer hunters are kind of like fishermen, you right. know. They say all, all liars aren't fishermen, but. <laughs> so that might be the case there, too. What about, uh, uh, let's talk about bears a little bit, if that's okay. Uh what yeah. does Forest Service do about bears or with bears? Or? Well, you know, so there's been a, a resurgence in the bear population. You know, that's another thing. It was we're restoring all these woods and we're creating all this, you know, pristine habitat. You're going to have those uh, kind of alpha species start to have more things to feed on. They're going to breed more. And um, so it's gotten to the point where MDC has uh, reauthorized bear hunting here in Missouri because there's enough uh, bears out there in the woods. And we put up a social media post a couple weeks ago just you know hey here's somebody shared a video of their encounter with the bear and this gentleman did everything right Mm -hmm. you know he's he stood there and said hey bear hey bear you know let him know he was there didn't back away um but you know didn't engage and just the bear wandered off and it was a good encounter but yeah you you could um you know uh, uh, if you're gonna go back or back country or wilderness or wherever um i wouldn't say you have to bring bear spray, but it wouldn't be a bad idea now. There is enough of a growing population. Um, and I think they're going to have 400, uh, no, not four, 40 bear slots. I forget how many they authorized this year. Three different three different zones, yeah. right. 15 in one, 10 or 15 in okay, another. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right something right. about like that. Of course, yeah. that season has ended now, and I think they wound up with about a dozen bears okay. taken. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And of course, uh, they made it pretty pretty tough. That's right. Uh, and, and I was glad to see that, you know, no baiting, no dogs, uh, all that sort of thing. No bothering bears and dens and that sort, right. of, sort of thing. And uh, it turned out to be a pretty pretty fair season, I would say. But i got, I got to tell you this guy's story, too. My wife hates for me to tell this story. I'll have to make sure she doesn't hear this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Irish Wilners, Levin Point. Uh, we were down deer hunting and uh, had a fabulous spot to camp just over the bank, catching lots of trout right there first evening. Of course, I had to cook trout for dinner. <laughs> it had gotten dark, and my wife had gone over down the bank to the boat. We had a little jet boat and had a spotlight on it. And I don't know why she was messing with the spotlight, but... I heard it hit the gravel, and she's kind of short and stocky, and boy, was she tearing a path back the boat to the bank. There's a big friggin' bear over there. She said, didn't you hear all that noise? Well, I'm so deaf from artillery fire and that kind of stuff that I couldn't hear anything. So I, she made me go down over the bank and pick up a spotlight. There was a big friggin' bear. I've, I've killed a couple in, in Canada, New Brunswick. Their bears are pretty small, and... Uh, this bear was much bigger than the bear I took in New Brunswick. Well, he huffed and took off up the river. I thought it was pretty cool. You know, my wife's trembling. Well, we got five more days to stay there at that campsite. She said, hey, you're cooking fish, you know. <laughs> that sort of thing. But I convinced her the bear's on his way, you know. But 2 o'clock in the morning, she wakes me up, whispered, Billy, that bear's coming across the river, you know. 
And it sounded like it. I could hear this. So I'm cracking the tin open with my little flashlight, you know, and there's three otters playing in the river. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Splashing. But every night it was something. One night it was yeah. raccoons. To, she hadn't slept all week. She's getting grouchy. Right. You know, about, about the fourth night, I mean, it sounded like a bear. It was real dry, big sycamore leaves in the camp, and it just sounds something like something very heavy walking. But, again, I'm peeking out the tent, got my little pistol in my flashlight, you know. <laughs> And I could hear this thing, but I couldn't see it. So I'm, I crawled out of the tent and finally spotted it. was a little white-footed deer mouse running through the leaves. Oh. And he sounded like an elephant. So <laughs> I had to get my camera, take a photograph, show it to my wife. Here's your bear, you know. <laughs> she didn't think it was funny, yeah, right? funny at all. But yeah. that Friday morning, she wanted to go home. We got up, go home. She hadn't slept all week. And we get home, and I start unloading everything. She grabs her rifle and goes out back. It sets on the food plot, and 20 minutes, I hear her shoot. She killed a deer right behind the house. She said, next time, we're staying home. <laughs> in my own bed. In my right. yeah. <laughs> But what a great experience, though, to be, be able to see animals like that. Yeah. And of course, you see the river otters. That's another subject. But to get out in these wilderness areas, there is a feeling. And, and of course, we had to go across a large cane flat to get to a mountain we were going to climb. It was kind of... And we ran across the weirdest cage out there. Had a in the description over it was about eight by ten. Had a gate on it. And my wife, she's heard me tell all these stories about people disappearing in the Irish wilderness, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. And she, what do you think that can be? Just where the mountain guys keep their women, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was, but fascinating guy. Here in the last uh, couple of minutes. If folks want to get more information about the Mark Twain National Forest, and I encourage them to do that because I get out in these areas a lot of times, even turkey hunting, and never see another person. There's a lot of land out there. How would they go about getting more information? Sure. Um, so, you know, always welcome to call one of our offices. We have seven different offices, six ranger districts, and a supervisor's office, you know, across southern central Missouri. Um, you can... Uh, go on the internet and just do a search for Mark Twain National Forest and you'll be able to find our offices but I'll go ahead and just say it real fast it's fs.usda.gov slash mtnf is our website um, and you can also follow us on Facebook um, that's going to be facebook.com slash Mark Twain National Forest all one word um, and yeah just uh, you know our offices um, you can call or uh, we recommend right now calling and if you need to visit scheduling but um, there's a lot of online tools now available as well there's even a uh, interactive visitor map app now that you can download that's good for like all forests across the country uh, which is really exciting and then I'd also recommend earlier we were talking about accessing sites and roadways um, going to our website and making sure that if you are going to go out adventuring that you have uh, some good maps talk to our our, uh, our folks about what maps you need for the area whether it's quad map but especially if you're going to be out on a UTV or something make sure you're following the motor vehicle use maps and we have those on our website and uh, there's other ways to get to them as well through like a Venza app and things. And, and the website has a lot of good information on recreation opportunities um, and they'll give you the um, email to recreation.gov where you can make reservations for national forest campgrounds um, but make sure you do some homework and and look in the website like uh, Cody had given you the the address of um, because there's a lot of great information 
there. That really is. And in the last year or so, I've been following, uh, catching your information that that you're posting. Man, I thought that was just grand. And is are you the new guy, uh, Thomas? How long have you been back from South I've been Carolina? back uh, about a year, right? A year. About a year. Okay. Are you guys posting all that stuff? Um, Cody's actually Cody's the one posting. that – that posts all the stuff on the internet. He's well, and I have a couple hundred people on the forest that send me things, so I can't take credit you, you for all the. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, yeah. I've been extremely impressed. Of course, I'm already a fan, but when I can get, I'm lazy too. You know, this is the information age. I right. like to punch, punch the buttons and get the information. And having been an outdoor communicator for a little over fifty years, I remember the days. I, was a writer for Game and Fish publication for 27, 28 years. I probably co- covered all of these wilderness areas, but do you know how hard it was 40, 50 years ago to get information? Uh, I was waiting weeks for stuff in the mail and that right. sort of thing, and now it's instantaneous. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, and it, that it, that's exactly right. It's, the, it's being prepared. It's the being prepared thing. And it, it, in this modern age where we've got apps that you can use for maps, and we use a, a really good one. Cody mentioned Avenza, which is one that is used quite a bit, and you can get a lot of free maps on it that, that tell you, you, even though you may not have cell service, you've still got GPS because the satellites are still up there. It'll tell you where you are. The one thing you've got to be careful about, and this is the be prepared part, is usually the batteries in a paper map don't run out. Yeah. So exactly. Care those as spares. Right. Put it as a backup. But I'm a horrible map reader. I actually (laughs) flunked map reading in the military. And uh, they weren't very happy with me on artillery range. <laughs> I fired that first round. It didn't go off the range, but it landed very close. And, uh, oh, you're talking about a chewing, you know. <laughs> they didn't have nice words to say. But it, I said, look, dude, you know, those things can hurt you. I'd much rather them land far, far away than close. Okay. And I, I demonstrated. I started walking them in, you know. He said, that's, cl- that's close enough. <laughs> but, guys, what a good time. Can, I want to give one more shout-out. Uh, absolutely. Just, uh, be ready for changing weather on Mark Twain National mm-hmm. Forest. So that's another thing with being prepared, as you mentioned, is have, uh, you know, whether it's cool stuff in the summer or this time of year, it's about bringing warm stuff with you and having, you know, if you get stuck in a crazy snow or ice storm and got to camp in your car, you want to have enough stuff to stay warm and get out the next day. So uh, just being prepared. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Stay hydrated. Absolutely. Yeah. But to that extra stuff, I've learned I've gone with the most <laughs> groups uh, had a family reunion at Yellowstone one time. Seven of us were going backpacking. I took enough gear and clothing for everybody. <laughs> Guess what? They needed it. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yeah, so you can't be over over prepared. Uh, gosh, done so many youth hunting camps and take so many clothes. Now, I actually had a guy one time was a film guy. Can't recall his name right minute, but he still owes me a pair of hunting boots. Brand new pair of hunting boots. I never got them back. But you know, it's it's an investment in keeping people safe and having a good time. And I see it particularly on float trips. People, so many people, are so unprepared in yeah. the summertime. Yeah. And uh, oh, they turn over. They get wet. They don't have spare clothes. And you know, late in the evening, even in the summertime, it can get pretty cool. And I've pulled a couple of people out that were hypothermic. You know, so yeah. hey, yeah. got to be prepared. But sure. well, guys, what great fun! This group could sit and talk all day long about <laughs> these sort of things. But all good things have to come to an end. But all of us sitting here, we do encourage you as listeners also to be participants in the outdoors. Get out and live your dream in the Missouri outdoors. I'm Bill Cooper. 
Hey guys, this is Frank Cox with Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. Hey, have you ever considered a career in real estate? If you have, but you don't have your license, this is your opportunity. So each month, the Living the Dream Outdoor Properties team is giving away a free seat to the online training that you need to take in order to get your real estate license. We would love to have you join our team. All you got to do is go to our website, livingthedreamland.com, and then click on the Our Team button, and then click on the one that comes up under that that says Join Our Team. On that page, there's an application form. Just simply fill that out and get in contact with a member of our team, and I'll be giving you a call. We appreciate you, and uh, good luck. The Live in the Dream Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Live in the Dream Outdoor Properties, The Fly Rod Journals, SmokerBuilder.com, Cowtown USA, Westover Farms, Scenic Rivers Taxidermy, Stained Water Bow Fishing, Scenic Rivers Guide Service and Tours, Huzzah Valley Resort, Pico Lures, Devil's Backbone Outfitters, Cardiac Mountain Outfitters, Mary's County Bank, The Fallen Outdoors, Ledco Sinkers and Lure Company, Turnbow Outdoors, and Rich's Famous Burgers. Land ownership is the American dream. Land is the basis of all life. Our wise use of this most precious of resources ensures the survival and growth of free institutions and our American way of life. At Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, we value the traditions and freedoms that land provides us. Every day we seek the solace of a mountain sunrise over traffic jams and smog, the calming silence of a bubbling stream over the sirens of the city, and the quiet of the countryside over the hustle and bustle of the world. We hunt, we fish, we farm. We live off the land. It's our mission to help our clients live out their dreams on the land as we do. At Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, we believe that it's not just land, it's a lifestyle. Join us five days a week on Living the Dream Outdoor Podcast as the Living the Dream Outdoor Dream Team explores the most desired outdoor properties in the Midwest and whisks you away to incredible hunting, fishing, and outdoor recreation opportunities. Host Bill Cooper, an inductee of the National Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, will be joined by members of the Living the Dream Outdoors team each week as they tell tall tales, unveil tips and tactics, and rub elbows with some of the biggest names in the outdoor world. You'll also find the Living the Dream Outdoors podcast on your favorite social media platforms, including Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok.